Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Christina Fryer, your host for today. Thanks for joining us. I just finished talking with Jason McGraw, author of The Work of Recognition, Caribbean Columbia and the Post-Emancipation Struggle for Citizenship, published with UNC Press in 2014. McGraw explores the six decades after the emancipation of slaves in 1852 in Colombia. And he shows how the lettered elite quickly tied emancipation to emerging ideas of universal citizenship in, in Colombia. By combining social, political, and intellectual history, McGraw shows how lettered elites tried to eliminate illiterate Colombians from formal politics, but how they never quite managed to fully silence the rich vernacular politics of the working classes. We had a great interview, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Caribbean, uh, Caribbean Studies. I'm Christina Fryer, your host today, and today we are going to be talking uh, to Jason McGraw about his new book, The Work of Recognition, Caribbean Columbia, and the Post-Emancipation Struggle for Citizenship. Uh, Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so Jason, I was wondering if you could uh, begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, in particular, how did you uh, come to be interested in Columbia? Uh, so I'm trained as an historian, and um, I got interested in, in Caribbean studies in college. Uh, but I kind of have a family connection to uh, Latin America. My father grew up in the Panama Canal Zone, uh, and my family lived in Venezuela and Honduras before I was born. And I kind of wanted to see places that my family had been. And, you know, this is connected to American empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to see these places and, uh, that involved traveling through Colombia. And I had friends from Colombia who really encouraged me to go, but during the nineties, you know, the drug war, kidnapping, uh, the civil war in Colombia, I was not, I was kind of, I was uh, apprehensive. Uh, and, but I traveled there anyways and I loved it. And, uh, um, this is right before I went to grad school and I was planning on working on Jamaican, uh, in Jamaican history for for a, a dissertation topic. Uh, but I just uh, really loved Columbia and uh, decided to go back and try to uh, figure out a project for Columbia. And um, uh, I did. I kind of made it work. I kind of found some, some, uh, some documents about freed slaves and kind of thought that'd be a great topic. And there was so little done on it that, um, that I wanted to pursue that. And how did you come to work specifically on Caribbean Colombias? Was that connected to your previous interest in Jamaica? Um, or uh, how did you get to, to that specific region, which, as you say in the book, um, is a region that has gotten a, a lot less focus both by historians, but also, it seems, um, seems to be somewhat ignored by the country at large? Yeah, you know, if you, if you read um, books on kind of uh, histories of Colombia that are self-consciously trying to tell a national story or national narrative, uh, the Colombian region doesn't figure very prominently. So uh, there are some historians from the Caribbean region of Colombia who want to change that. And so I'm part of that 
I see that my work is part of that project. Uh, but I came to, to the Caribbean region because I, when I traveled through the region, uh, I was in one area called uh, La Wajira, which is the, the Wajira Peninsula. Uh, and there's a large indigenous population known as the Wayu. Uh, and they're a transnational population. They're, they live in Colombia and Venezuela. They're the largest indigenous population in both, uh, in both countries. And I thought I'd work on, on Wayu history, kind of uh, ethno history of resistance to uh, the encroaching nation states that they now live within. Uh, and so that was my original intent. And then I, I decided to switch to a kind of post-emancipation project because uh, that's why I got into grad school, actually, is to work on post-emancipation history. And so there's so little of that on Colombia that I thought this is really a place I could make an intervention and, and offer something new. Um, and so I just I thought the Caribbean region would be a good case study. And then trying to also connect it to to uh, people working in other Caribbean contexts, I thought it was it'd be a, a useful um, study for for them. I'm trying to make a connection that that often doesn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. As as uh, as a, somebody who works on the Caribbean myself, I can attest to the fact that um, there isn't as much uh, work connecting um, connecting the sort of uh, Caribbean mainland uh, right. to the islands. Um, and your work, Laura Putnam's work, others um, are starting to to really bridge that gap. Right. Um, so this project stemmed from uh, your dissertation. Um, and could you tell us a little bit about how you approached uh, revisions uh, from the dissertation to the book? I know that for me, this is sort of a daunting process. So how did you tackle that? It's it's so daunting. <laughs> <laughs> and good luck with that. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, 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 needed, I, I realized I needed a stronger narrative uh, in the book that wasn't there in the dissertation. Um, the, the, and the dissertation was very much wedded to um, the kinds of narratives that, that Colombianists have been writing about, and mostly about politics. So about the party system, the political party system, uh, the political history. Um, and so my dissertation is very much in line with that, those kinds of uh, existing um, narratives. But I, I realized that for the book, it really needed to be a more emphatic story of Colombia as a post-emancipation uh, history that does just doesn't exist. Um, and, and the typical narrative in terms of the abolition of slavery is that um, uh, in the late colonial era, there's a decay of slavery and then the wars of independence accelerated the process of, of, of liberation, um, enslaved people freeing themselves. And then the chaos of early Republican era um, uh, led to more liberation. And then by the middle of the century, there's this legal fiat that ends slavery. Um, and, I, and that's the end of the story, usually. There's, you hear nothing about what happens after that. And so I realized that, that, for me, that's the beginning of the story. Using the abolition of slavery in 1851, 1852, in the case of Colombia, uh, and seeing how that plays out over um, the next half century. And so that's, that's there in my dissertation, but I really needed to uh, make every chapter kind of uh, about that. So each chapter is kind of a... Um, uh, one part of the story of, of what happens after the abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so my dissertation is kind of a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't all of ours. <laughs> <laughs> just the ki- kitchen sink kind of dumping, you know, I found so much good stuff. I'm just going to dump it into a footnote, but uh, the book, I just needed to streamline it. And so 
you know, I rewrote about 95% of it. There's, there's very little direct writing that's left of my dissertation. And I wrote at least, at least two new chapters. Um, and so it's some of it was rearranged material from the dissertation, but sure. it, I just needed to retell the story in a more, uh, in a clearer way, in a more thematically consistent way than I did in the dissertation. Well, thank you for that. Does that does that help? I don't. Know oh, it does. It it, <laughs> it actually much mirrors uh, the the sort of the thinking that I'm doing now as I'm trying to as I'm trying to organize. Um, so you've talked to us a little bit about these sort of existing narratives in Colombian historiography uh, prior. Uh, what about the sort of broader literature on post emancipation transitions? You're you're making a case here in the introduction that Colombia is unique because it's a society with slaves. Uh, as opposed to a slave society. Can you tell us more about that? So uh, in Colombia, when slavery was abolished in 18, well, the law was passed in 1851, and then it went into effect the first day of 1852, there were about 16 to 17,000 enslaved people. And uh, they gained their freedom. And, and actually, we, we know very little about them after, uh, after that day because uh, people didn't care. They thought that was the end, that they'd moved on. Um, and, uh, and that's true for a lot of, of the Spanish-American republics, that the, the last day of slavery is seen as the end of the story, and, and we don't get to hear about what happens after, after that. Um, and so I thought, well, what, what does a post-emancipation experience look like for a place that had very few enslaved people at the moment they abolished slavery, unlike Brazil, unlike Jamaica, San Domingue, Haiti, the U.S. South, mm-hmm. where the, the story becomes how – Formerly enslaved people struggle to to you know make freedom a real meaningful thing when there are other um, forces at work trying to limit what freedom is. Um, and what I realized for Colombia, what 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 it meant, uh, what what freedom meant in a situation where the vast majority of people were already technically free, um, is that uh, emancipation was embraced by by society at large. Um, that people used slave emancipation to make sense of their own rights, their own uh, political inclusion, their own status in society. And so emancipation became this framework for thinking about what citizenship should be, how people, how citizens should act, um, who belonged. Um, And so, uh, you know, it it, it affected um, commercial policy. It affected education policy. It affected marriage laws around marriage um, and divorce were all shaped by slave emancipation. That became the, the, the justification for making all kinds of reforms. The problem, though, was that as, it got, as slave emancipation was embraced by all citizens, then it became very difficult for free people of color to make demands uh, for themselves uh, based on the struggle against slavery. And so they, their, their story gets submerged by a, a, a national majority who's trying to make sense of their own citizenship rights um, using slave emancipation. Most people had very little um, contact with, with slavery when it was abolished. And yet they were using slave emancipation to make sense of their own rights. And so free, free people, um, free people of African descent um, uh, had a very difficult time saying that they deserved rights um, for having destroyed slavery, essentially. Um, and so there's a real tension between uh People of African descent struggling for rights, struggling for independence, struggling for some kind of status um, against a majority who's saying that that 
all uh, everyone had become just Colombians. Everybody were equal citizens. Uh, um, and that, that wasn't always true, right? There are people, there are exclusions going on. There, there are, um, uh, moments where political rights are being destroyed. Um, and, um, there's growing inequality. And, and so, um, but slave emancipation remained the, the main kind of point of tension between, um, different populations. In, in different people making different claims to uh, emancipation um, for different, very different reasons. Right. And so that plays out over what I say is about 50 years that people are, are con- continually struggling around um, issues of freedom and citizenship um, and often going back to 1852 when, when slavery was abolished. There's something that you just said that I actually wanted to, to pick up on, which was this, this idea that um, – that free people of color had done the work of, of, uh, of destroying slavery. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, I really, I really, um, you know, I and, and, and other people working in the black Atlantic, um, Lauren Dubois, um, uh, it, it, others, um, you know, to take it back to CLR James and to W.E.B. Du Bois that, that really, uh, emancipation was about self-liberation, that the enslaved people freed themselves. Um, that it wasn't some outside, uh, you know, elite white project mm-hmm. to bring freedom to, you know, to gift freedom to the people. That was definitely in Columbia. That was definitely a, 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 an attempt by the politically powerful to per- portray the abolition of slavery as this gift to the to the population. But really, in, in Colombia and in other Spanish American countries, enslaved people liberated themselves, that there was very little um, desire among politically connected people, among slaveholders, among, you know, other, other um, powerful groups to bring about full emancipation. And so it was up to the slaves themselves to do it. Uh, and so the erosion of, of, of slavery in Colombia was really uh, about uh, individuals fleeing into free terrain, um, into the jungles, into the woods um, of the Caribbean coast of the Pacific region um, and becoming maroons. Uh, and that was a slow movement. But, but over time, it really built up. And um, by the time slavery was abolished, it was basically a dead letter. There were very few enslaved people left because um, enslaved people had liberated themselves over um, several generations. So the uh, 17,000 that you're, that you're talking about, 17,000, uh, people who were freed by the 1852 uh, abolition decree. Yeah. Um, that number is so small because of the sort of self manumission, the self marinage, yes. the, the the moving into the hinterlands over over a good half century or more. Right. Really, I mean, going back to the beginnings of of, of African slavery in the Americas, but but in Colombia, it's really uh, you know 50 to 100 years before 1852 that. Um, enslaved people are, are, are really pushing to end slavery in, in that way. Um, and so uh, it, that lets the political pressure off of the people in, in, in control of the republic. Who right? then they, get to claim. Right. They get to claim that they had brought about freedom in 1852. But, you know, it's only because enslaved people had done the work. Right. Know, the burden was on them uh, to bring about liberation. Right. Um, but but that that narrative of of you know the liberals in, in control of the republic had brought about uh, freedom. That's that becomes the dominant story, um, 
And that's true all throughout Spanish America, that, that the liberals brought about freedom. They gifted freedom to the people. Um, and so that's why that's the end of the story, right? <laughs> that, 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 you know, it, it took this culmination of liberal law and values to, to bring it about. But that's just not on the ground. That's not what's what was really happening. Right. So um, can you talk to us about this concept of recognition, which is in your title, um, and that is a pretty central concept throughout the book, and it ties in with these questions of citizenship that you're talking about. Yeah, so recognition, I, you know, it's, it, I think it's, um, you know, you hear it a lot. I mean, I, I take it from Charles Taylor, Nancy Frazier, who are working on thinking about multiculturalism in, in the, you know, last um, 25 years or so. Um, and what I do is I apply this this concept to social practice, so practice in public um, of citizens going out in public and demanding to be acknowledged as citizens with rights, um, as people with status who belong. Uh, but it goes beyond that. It's also uh, individuals in public uh, or groups in public demanding the right to recognize other people as citizens. So people take on this authority or, or vest themselves with this, this, this um, capacity to say other people are citizens. So it's this kind of recursive um, uh, practice of social interaction where uh, people expect to be you know, recognized as citizens themselves, but they also demand the right to recognize other people as citizens. And so this, this kind of builds up uh, a sense of, of um, what I call vernacular citizenship that really on the street is where all this is happening in the, in the, in the plazas, in the marketplace. Um, people are demanding these rights and the, demanding the right to, to recognize other people as having rights. Um, uh, so, you know, for, for Charles Taylor, it's a very kind of, um, you know, he, 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 he treats recognition at this level of abstraction. But I, I really want to look at it as, as a social historian, I want to look at it as, as something that people are actually doing. You do it. You, you go out there and you do recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also take from Charles Taylor this idea that uh, the problem with recognition is, is the, 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 the Atlantic revolutions you know, of the 18th and 19th centuries create this sense of the universal, universal citizen. We're all equal. We all have the same rights, you know, political equality. Um, but very quickly, it's true, you know, it, it's clear that not all, there's not, not all members of the polity are equal, um, that there are divisions. And then we have uh, people of African descent making demands on their own behalf. And for uh, the liberals who say that we have liberal equal citizenship, we all have the same rights, we're all, um, we're all Colombian, uh, when people of color make demands on their own behalf, that, that is seen as an affront to that equality, uh, to that universal citizen, citizenship. Um, uh, so that's the problem. I see that as the problem that, that Colombians try to work out over decades. Um, uh, on the one hand, there's this universal um, sense of citizenship. We all belong. We're all, we all have rights. Um, and then when people make demands on their own behalf, that, that's seen as a violation uh, of the universal um, sense of citizenship, and in a way, this is sort of remind. This is calling to mind sort of the 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 so the, the French Revolution and those ideas yes. uh, working uh, in France. And it's just it's just making me wonder whether you think is this is this a problem uh, that's particular to post emancipation republics? 
That's a good question. Um, right. I mean, I think France is, and Colombia is often seen as, as the Latin American country that gets closest to the French revolutionary ideal. Mm. And so in France today, right, the French are still working out this, uh, you know, this, this colorblindness, yep. this idea that, that we can't recognize certain cultural differences. We're all, you know, this universal secular citizen. Uh, and, and so that's happening in Colombia in the, in the mid 19th century. So is it unique? I don't think it's unique because I think as Charles, Charles Taylor points out, right, this problem kind of spreads across the world. This idea that, that citizenship should be this universalizing impulse, this universalized, universalizing goal. Uh, and then any particular demands within that become the problem. Um, and then at the same time, there's still racism. There's still anti-black racism. There's still demands to exclude populations because if they don't live up to that universal ideal, then they don't, they don't deserve rights. Right. So that becomes the other side of the problem. Um, so I don't know if it's unique to, to post-emancipation societies, but in Colombia, that problem does not really, um, does not really uh, happen until slave emancipation makes the universal citizen even a possibility. Ah, okay. That, um, before, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So before, before abolition, um, people are talking about citizenship, but it's really slave emancipation that um, gets embraced by all people, indigenous people, mestizos, uh, people of European descent, claim slave emancipation as vesting them with this universal, that they now have these rights that, that extend to all men, right? This kind of very gendered. Um, ideology of, of the citizen in the 19th century, all men have equal rights. And, the, and slave emancipation made that possible. It abolished all these distinctions. Um, but then when certain groups, uh, based on you know, wanting more control in uh, labor control, more control of religious practices, more you know, political control, make particular demands, then they're seen as a violation of, of the universal. Um, and that, that's just really hard to entangle. Yeah. But no, you're, you're, you're totally right. This is not, I don't think it's unique to the, to a post-emancipation society, but in Colombia, at least that's, that's when this problem comes about. Yeah. So uh, let's start sort of moving through uh, the chapters, which we've kind of already done, especially with this, the, the, the first chapter. Sure. Um, and the first chapter starts with this idea that you've just uh, laid out for us um, of this collective agreement about emancipation and about the goodness of emancipation in part as because you, because as you say, it's a dead letter. Um, so because so many people have, have already freed themselves um, there, there almost seems to be very little political cost uh, right. to, to emancipation. Uh, right. But you point out that there is no such agreement over, uh, over rights. Um, and then the rest of the chapter moves on to these sort of political uh, uh, confrontations. It seems as though, um, throughout this period of, of the whole book, there's a constant conflict between the liberals who seem to be claiming this emancipationist mantle uh, yep. versus the conservatives who kind of are, but kind of aren't. Um, right. And so uh, I was wondering if you could talk, uh, give us a little bit of the lay of the land of the, of, of the political parties uh, and then move us to the coup that you talk about in chapter one. Sure. So, um, uh, in, in Colombia, and Colombia is, is seen as a country in Latin America that has one of the oldest traditions of, of party politics. That where in, in there have been moments of dictatorship and, and and whatnot, but the the political parties do have this almost um, 
almost continual tradition that goes back to the mid-19th century. And so it's really at the moment of slave emancipation that the political parties start to, to really form. So the liberals were uh, very much connected to the European revolutions of 1848, to the French revolutionary ideals that we, we, we talked about, um, uh, to uh, universal rights, uh, free trade, free markets, um, so kind of classical liberalism. Uh, but they're also a kind of a mixed bag. I mean, they, 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 they attracted artisans, and artisans were, were opposed to free trade generally. Um, they attracted some military figures who, who were not so committed to, um, uh, you know, laissez-faire policies and wanted a strong state. So they're kind of a mixed group. But then on the other hand, as, as the liberals were forming as a, as a congealing as a party, uh, the, the conservatives were also congealing in opposition to them. And their main, uh, their, their main points, their main political stances were really support for the Catholic Church. That's, that's number one. Um, and there are some, you know, I think large landholders um, were there. But really, I think the, the religious issue becomes key in Colombia early on. Um, because on both sides, they had, there, were, there were, you know, rich people on both sides. There were uh, large landholders on both sides. There were actually slaveholders on both sides. So th- it's not that the liberals were the abolitionists and the conservatives were the slaveholders. It's that um, the liberals were able to portray the conservatives as the pro-slavery party. But that's not, that was not very true in, in practice. Um, uh, but after abolition, after, after final emancipation in 1852 – the, the partisan differences really start to, to um, uh, be exacerbated. Um, uh, and then, um, so the coup that you're talking about is just two years after um, slave emancipation, uh, the, the officer in charge of the military garrison in Bogota, the capital of Colombia, New Granada at the time, but we, this is Colombia today, uh, overthrows the national government, the civilian government. Um, and there's a nine-month civil war. Uh, and that's where the liberals and conservatives who are opposed to the military come together. Uh, and that's, a, that's kind of a theme that, are, that runs throughout the book, is that um, there are these moments of popular demands for more control, um, or expanded rights, um, or these particular demands uh, and at the, those moments, um, cons- liberal and conservative elites, the kind of university-trained, lettered groups, really come together uh, against these attempts for more popular control. So there is. So part of the part of the book is about liberals versus conservatives, but it's also about um, the kind of el- elite groups um, putting aside these partisan differences at moments in order to consolidate control. Right. And kind of keep popular demands uh, at bay. Um, so this this coup in 1854, where the military overthrows the government, uh, is a, that first real moment where liberals and conservatives, the top kind of top ranked um, uh, political leaders, the civilian leadership, come together and say, "Let's put aside partisan differences and get rid of this, these <laughs> popular forces uh, trying to control the country," uh, and they're able to do so. Uh, but on the Caribbean coast, uh, there was really, really strong support for this coup because they saw this as a moment where popular control re- was really close at hand. Um, but again, the defeat of this coup after about a nine-month civil war 
um, really, really forces down the popular demands, really um, puts a lid on it. Uh, and so the end of my chapter, that first chapter, is this kind of ambiguous situation where uh, slave emancipation had brought about this universal citizenship, but it also had, un- had to unleash these popular demands for more control, um, for kind of uh, ground-up uh, democracy. Um, but this coup, which makes it, you know, really is the moment where this popular democracy really could have been, uh, is finally defeated. Uh, and the forces that, that, that win the day are these forces that are very ambivalent at best towards popular democracy. Um, and so there's, it's this kind of ambi- ambiguous ending um, for how, how democratic is Columbia going to be. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it seems that that continues into uh, the subject of, of chapter of, of chapter two um, in that the coup is over. There have been uh, elections that, uh, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the first uh, universal male suffrage uh, uh, elections. Um, and so despite the, the sense that the entire body politics spoke, um, there remain these very heightened political tensions after 1856. Uh, leading us into a civil war in which you say in the book, uh, emancipation legacies continue to be worked out uh, in the process of that civil war. Yeah. So there's a civil war um, that lasts from 1859 to 1862, 1863. So it's overlapping with the U S civil war and Colombians were very aware that their civil war was, uh, was happening at the same time as the civil war in the United States. Uh, And, very quickly, the, the the issues of this war became, would there be universal rights, universal suffrage for men, for dull men? Uh, and so both sides connected this struggle to slave emancipation. The liberals who were fighting for to regain control of the country uh, framed it, framed the, the struggle as a, a fight for suffrage, uh, suffrage based in slave emancipation. And they portrayed the enemies, they portrayed the conservatives who were in control of the country as uh, wanting, wanting to bring back some kind of political slavery, some kind of um, exclusionary white control. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they could make an easy case because former slaveholders were, uh, were the conservatives at the time. They were the top conservatives. And so it very much became seen as a war of the pro-emancipation forces, the liberals wanting universal rights, universal suffrage. And uh, conservatives who were trying to close down suffrage, trying to exclude um, the majority of population. And so it becomes a referendum on, on slave emancipation. Will, will the slave emancipation legacy live on as universal rights and suffrage or, um, or will there be some kind of um, exclusive minority power um, And the liberals win? But again, it's it, like, as in chapter one, there's kind of a, an ambiguous ending where, um, the liberals, after they win this war uh, and retake power um, from the conservatives, are, are very quickly willing to make, um, make peace with the top uh, conservative leadership. And many of them are former slaveholders. So we have abolitionist leaders and former slaveholder leaders coming together and saying, let's make peace. Let's have civilian rule. Um, and again, so those popular demands for more control are, again, suppressed at the very end of the day. Um, when there is this moment early on where this could be a more popular democracy um, uh, during the war itself. Mm. Um, so I, I do, I do frame it as this kind of uh, this possibility happens and then it's, it's quickly 
brushed aside. Right, right. Uh, so elite power, elite men can, can regain control of the country. And it seems like one of the things that's going on um, that you really start to actually develop in chapters three and four um, is that there is an emerging conflict between the working classes, um, many of whom uh, would have been uh, uh, would have been either enslaved or uh, people who had freed themselves, um, and the lettered. Um, and uh, you talk about uh, you talk in chapter three about some of these uh, working class people, uh, the Bogas in particular. Um, who are the Bogas, and why do they come to represent so much in in Colombia during this period? So the Bogas are are boatmen, um, and they're working on the Magdalena River, which is the the, the major river of Colombia um, that flows to the Caribbean uh, from the interior, from the Andes, uh, Andes Mountains, and um, they are the ones carrying uh, any goods, any commerce. Any travelers um, have to uh, get on a boat with these boatmen uh, and travel either up or down the river. Uh, and they are almost all men of African descent. Some, some are probably men of African and indigenous descent, and, and they are often portrayed as, as a racially mixed um, African and Indian. Uh, and there are, there are probably tens of thousands of them on the river, and, and they are responsible for the nation's commerce. In the 19th century, uh, they're moving goods to market. They're moving the tobacco that flows out of Colombia to Germany uh, in the 19th century is, is um, they're doing their, their labor. Um, but what happens after slave emancipation is that the, the framers of the, con- the post-emancipation constitution uh, frame free labor as, as a conjoined freedom with the freedom to make money, to profit. Um, in, in, in the constitution itself, it's a single phrase, um, the free, free industry and labor. Um, so for merchants, for the political establishment, uh, for people who care about free markets, um, the bogas, the boatmen of the Magdalena quickly become the, the problem because they can't control the market unless they negotiate with these boatmen. Uh, and what they desire is to get rid of them. Uh, for them, they can't have a free market in Colombia um, if boatmen are in control of the river. And, and really, the, the boatmen set the pace of commerce and they set the pace of travel um, for much of the 19th century. Uh, and so uh, with them in control of the river and they can set the pace of their own labor, uh, and they want independence. They don't want to be um, you know, subordinated to wages. They don't want to be... Um, reduced to wage servitude. Um, the main desire of the political establishment is to get rid of them. Uh, so that plays out a major struggle uh, in chapter three, as you mentioned, um, over what, what slave emancipation is going to look like, what freedom will look like. And so that, that part of the story, I think, will be m- more familiar to, to people who, who work on the Caribbean, that it's a struggle to define free labor. Yeah. Um, it's a very different kind of group. The, the Caribbean coast of Colombia has no plantations um, until really the 20th century. There's, there's a rise of plantations in the 20th century. In the 19th century, it's really defined by commerce, by trade, uh, by m- moving goods uh, from other parts of Colombia to, the, to, to world markets. But these men become essential. The, the, there would be no connection to the world markets without these men moving goods. Uh, and they're also allied with 
with women who are working on shore in markets. And so women are really responsible for feeding uh, the laboring populations. They, they, they provide the food, they sell the, the food in local markets. Um, and so this, this, the, the rise of a, of a national market would not have been possible without women uh, both growing food and also feeding populations. So I also deal with market women and, mm-hmm. and how they fit into this world. And, and their relationship to bogas, to the boatmen, uh, help, help fuel their independence from, from wages. Right. Uh, so market women become a problem, too, for, for um, the, the kind of capitalist elite. The people who want to have a capitalist <laughs> economy uh, see both the boatmen and market women as a problem. Uh, and their attempts to get rid of them, first by policing them, uh, and then by technology, bringing in steam technology, steamboats, uh, become the solution. Uh, but for the most, much of the 19th century, it's just a constant low-grade struggle between merchant capitalists and, and labor on the river um, over what labor should be, um, what, you know, what wages should be, what's a just wage, um, how much independence workers should have. Um, so that again, I see, I, 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 um, I portray that as, as a major, um, outcome and legacy of, of slave emancipation. And as you say, uh, for people working on uh, post-emancipation, uh, Caribbean or, um, other post-emancipation, other post-emancipation societies, this is, um, both a very familiar, uh, uh, concept, the idea of fighting over, uh, wages, um, and, and particularly the, the idea of what it exactly is going to, the, the, the way that labor connects to, uh, the hopes of the new post-emancipation economy. Um, right. but there is a, a, a specific local variant here. Um, part of it, it seems is, is, uh, just a sort of ge- geographical, um, chance of having this one river that's such a central, uh, throughway, um, in Colombia. And then the, the specific makeup of, uh, of these boat, uh, of these boatmen. Um, there's a strike that you that you mentioned in the in, in this chapter. Can you say a little bit more about about that? Right. So if, if I could just go back just a second. So slave emancipation is in 1852, and that that um, and then there's a, a post emancipation constitution that says all um, all people are free. There's no more slavery in the republic, uh, and that same constitution says that um, defines free free labor, um, and it, it's the intertwined problem I just mentioned that, that the freedom to profit and the freedom to work are one and the same. And that becomes the problem uh, for the merchants. They want to control the boga. So they, they demand that the, the, the government starts policing them. So there's a new police force that comes into being uh, that tries to curtail their freedoms, tries to control their wages, uh, tries to, um, uh, you know, arrest men who are seen as, you know, uh, derelict in their duties, um, uh, tries to prevent theft. They, you know, accuse them of, of robbing merchandise all the time. Uh, and so there's this new pressure on the workforce from the state uh, in, in, at the behest of, of merchants to control the, the working population. Uh, and so just uh, in 1857, so just five years after emancipation, uh, the Bulgas of the Magdalena have had enough and they stage a strike where they say they're not going to, they're not going to work unless they're paid more. And most importantly, that they're recognized by the state as an honorable labor force 
that is responsible for the country's economy. Um, and they're able to shut down commerce on the Magdalena River for several days. The, the, the Bogas in the strike, and then Bogas who are not part of the strike, just refuse to work, refuse to be scab labor uh, until the, there's a negotiation. And, and the, the government concedes, and they raise their wages by 500%. Um, so it's clear the Bogas have a lot of control because they're able <laughs> to shut down the entire Magdalena River. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're threatening the economy. Uh, the government has to concede to them. Uh, and so this, I see this as a direct, resp- uh, direct outcome of this constitution that says free labor and free commerce are one and the same. That there's going to be a, 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 a it's going to come to a head, and it does. It just takes five years. Um, but then, you know, as history is, it gets messy, right? There's no, this, this is a victory for the Bogas at this moment, but the, the long-term effect is that the, the state even applies more repression, in the wake of the strike, because they, they realize that the bogus have the, the control. And so the, the state works to really erode that control for decades after the, bo- the boatmen win the strike. Right. And then, of course, as you mentioned, uh, they're also quickly moving to develop steam technology, which el- eliminates uh, the bogus. Um, do the bogus end up working on steamboats or is that another workforce entirely? They're probably one in the same. Okay. They're, actually, they're actually called bogas uh, sometimes. On okay. the they're, they're most likely either men who worked on the. I, I forgot to say the bogas were they they're, they they push the boats by hand mm-hmm. uh, up a river for a thousand miles. So uh, upstream, as you can imagine, how difficult that is. It took three months. Um, so that's really hard hard work, obviously. Um, so, yeah, they end up on the steamboats, and they're, they're bringing their kind of militant practices onto the steamboats, too. But, you know, on the steamboats, they have much less control. Right. Um, they can't set the pace of their labor in the same way as they could when they were manually pushing boats uh, on the river. Um, there's a new there's – a, there's a captain who's usually a European or North American, so a white man. Uh, they hire a, a crew chief who is allowed to carry a gun, so there's this kind of um, – coercive, you know, this potentially violent, coercive uh, um, regime that comes into place on the steamboats. Uh, And so they have less room to negotiate uh, than they did when they were on the boats that they were in control of. So, right, steam technology is seen as the solution to to disciplining labor. Um, But it's only partially effective, as I point out. Right. You know, it's, it's, again, it's another ambiguous outcome. Um, you know, by the end of the, the free trade era, so free trade in Colombia is 1850 to 1880, more or less. Uh, there's an ambiguous, you know, who's in control. It's kind of both, you know, merchants and the laborers can kind of can, uh, can, can um, claim victory. Um, so it's, it's ambiguous. Mm. As much history is, right? <laughs> exactly. So, so in, in, in Chapter 4, we see the, the, basically the opponents of, uh, of, of the working uh, of the of the working classes, which are the lettered, um, and as I understand it, uh, this idea of the lettered, um, uh, the lettered city, the lettered republic, this is a fairly key uh, concept in Latin American studies, um, yeah. and you talk about it here in terms of these very severe conflicts between the lettered and the unlettered, again over this issue of citizenship. Um, yeah. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit more about this about uh, the lettered um, and these conflicts? 
so the the letter you know go by different names the letrados um the literati um you know it, it's it's as if 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 every member of congress and every president we've had published poetry while they were in office that's that's the kind of horrible situation we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> they were lawyer poets so by day they wrote law and at night they wrote poetry and published poetry so that's that's who the they, these people are uh, and they were civilians. They were very much committed to civilian rule. So they were very much opposed to the military. They, they, they didn't trust the military. The military had staged a coup in the 1850s. There had been a civil war where uh, military leaders had mobilized the populace. Um, you know, and this goes back to Simon Bolivar mobilizing uh, for, you know, freed slaves and, and, and whatnot for to fight the wars of independence. There's a lot of uh, hostility towards the military. So these are very much civilian, university-trained lawyers uh, who want to have civilian c- control. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's admirable, civilians in control of the government. But they were very much, they had very, very narrow ideas of, of civilization, uh, and that meant that uh, non-literate people were not deserving of rights. So these were the same populations, though, that had passed, had passed slave emancipation as a legal uh, ruling, had written a constitu- constitution that said all adult men have equal rights. But in their p- private writings, in their, in their published writings, they said uh, non-literate people don't, are not really citizens. And this is, an, this is especially a problem because there is so large and a non-literate population in Colombia at this time, correct? Right. Probably, you know, in some places, 90% of the population couldn't read and write. Uh, so, so technically, legally, they, they were, they were uh, citizens. They, they had rights. Adult men, regardless of literacy and regardless of property, were, were enfranchised and could vote uh, in many places. Uh, but the, the the civilians in control of the government, the elites, uh, really didn't trust people who couldn't read and write. Right? They didn't think that they deserved rights. Uh, so that's a contradiction. Contradiction. Uh, sorry, contradiction that plays out in chapter four is this kind of ambivalence around citizenship for people who who you know believe there should be a universal ideal, but then in their published writings, um, their poetry, they they clearly did not believe that 90% of the population was fit to have rights. Um, and do we see uh, any attempts to try to educate these people? So, so, the, so the main attempt to, to bring about a true universal ideal, you know, universal citizenship was uh, a law to, to, to introduce um, universal primary education, to basically teach uh, literacy to the population. Uh, and that is going to be for them. That's the, for the for the letrados who control the government. That's going to be this ideal, right? We're going, they're going to finally bring about the universal ideal by by having universal literacy. Uh, and and so this um, this educational reform in 1870 that I talk about in chapter four is this attempt uh, at universal um, literacy, uh, and it fails miserably. Uh, first of all, the conservative, conservatives oppose it because it's secular education. And the conservatives believe in, in religious education, believe that the church should have a role or outright just control all schools. So there's conservative resistance to this secular universal education. And then the, the liberals themselves are, are ambivalent about 
what this education should be. Um, they do want literacy for the population because they need, they realize to be a citizen, you have to be literate, but they also have this esteem for their own, their own high learning, their own erudition, their own sophisticated learning. And they can't, they can't get beyond that to say, to realize that uh, they should just focus on basic literacy. Uh, So that falls by the wayside very quickly. Uh, and the fact that they fail to achieve it really reinforces the exclusions that they claim to be trying to overcome. Uh, so, so literacy rates don't change in Colombia until probably the 1940s and 50s. Wow, that's quite late. Yeah. I mean, other parts of Latin America, Argentina has moved towards full literacy or, or universal education by around 1900. Colombia, it's much later. It's a, it's a good 50 years later. So uh, chapter five, I think you is, is, is to me seems to be the actual really heart uh, of the book because it's where you finally get to this concept of vernacular politics. Um, but I, I think as a, as is a tendency in 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 the, in the history that you that you've laid out, the moment we have this sort of efflorescence of vernacular politics, immediately comes a, a sort of repressive uh, a repressive uh, move, and in this case, it's the regeneration. Um, so can you talk to us about the vernacular politics that you see here um, and then how they're repressed by regeneration? Yeah, so after the Civil War of the, the early 1860s, uh, the Caribbean coast is one of the regions that chooses to, uh, to um, keep universal manhood suffrage in place. Other parts of Colombia, controlled by these elite, elitist letrados, get rid of suffrage for, for the majority of men. The Caribbean coast retains it. And so a couple of other regions do too, the Calca region, Antioquia, other, other parts of Colombia. Uh, and because the coast retains universal manhood suffrage, that allows for this flourishing democratic culture on the coast. Uh, and it also allows um, popular sectors, the, 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 the non-literate population, to make new demands on uh, the republic. Um, they're enfranchised. Uh, even non-enfranchised people, young people and women are starting to make demands based on the fact that there's this, this um, universal uh, ideal still alive on the coast. Um, men, of the, men of the Caribbean region and, and many women had fought for the republic, had fought uh, to push back this conservative reactionary government. And they thought that these, the, the universal manhood suffrage plus these sacrifices they had made um, meant that they could make new demands. And they often went beyond what the, the Constitution said. They were demanding control over the church. So there was a mass movement to, of, of parishioners to take control of Catholic parishes, to, to basically um, force parish priests to either submit to their will or they'd throw, them out of the, throw the priests out of the parish. People were making demands for land. So there's a, a large um, struggle around property on the coast. Uh, people are revolting against taxes. There's a tax rebellion going on. Uh, and pe- as, uh, the whole time, uh, the political structure is kind of allowing this to go on. Um, but over time, there's a, a growing resistance among kind of the political establishment on the coast to this, um, this kind of popular uprising um, going on. And so many of these liberals at the top start to switch sides to the conservatives, to the people who are wanting to, to get rid of manhood suffrage, um, to impose more exclusions on, on the political system. 
but it takes about a generation for this to happen. So there's popular demands um, pushing for more control, more popular control. And then by the 1880s, many liberal leaders on the coast are ready to switch sides, ready to give up on the emancipation legacy and, and work towards a new authoritarian um, system, the regeneration. And that comes into place in the 1880s. And it's really, uh, it's the, the figurehead of the, this reactionary authoritarian um, switch is a Caribbean liberal, um, Rafael Nunez, one of the most famous controversial uh, political uh, leaders, historical figures in Colombia. Uh, he really leads that movement towards a more authoritarian system uh, uh, that, that disenfranchises the vast majority of men. Uh, and once they're able to disenfranchise men who had been, been able to vote, then they're able to impose this new order in the mid-1880s. Uh, and after that moment, I call it, it's, it's the nadir of citizenship. It's most men are denied rights. Uh, they're denied the vote. Uh, and so this, this 35-year experiment out of slave emancipation really is, 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 comes crashing down. Uh, and it's really liberals switching sides to the conservatives and, again, forming this alliance with the, the, the leaders at the top right. across party lines that makes it possible to get rid of popular rights in the 1880s. So we uh, have this, uh, this regeneration, which, which uh, fosters mass disenfranchisement. Right. Uh, you point out in Chapter 6 that there's also a much weaker economy. Um, but as you say uh, very clearly in the introduction – um, some of these vernacular politics actually outlast um, the, these, these restrictions, so they, they survive past uh, the regeneration. Um, and so in Chapter 6, you talk about uh, a particularly fascinating uh, millenarian movement uh, that seems to sort of bring together all of these concerns about disenfranchisement, uh, about uh, the, the weaker economy, um, and, and ties that into uh, religious practice. Um, can you tell us more about what's happening uh, with this millenarian movement? Yeah, so, so the, this regeneration is, is able to disenfranchise men in the mid-1880s, but, but still people are, had been, for, for more than a generation, they had been out in the streets demanding rights, demanding to recognize other people as having rights. Uh, so it's, it's really hard to, to wipe that out overnight. Uh, and so it really takes this this effort by uh, the state and the church coming together to try to wipe out these popular demands for for status, for rights, for for um, citizenship. And after about fifteen years, it seems like uh, the state has been able to shut down the public sphere. That there's there's really very few um, outlets for dissent, for opposition to the state. The state is very authoritarian. Uh, Bogota is in control of most political resources, most material resources. Um, uh, and so the periphery, places like Car- the Caribbean region, are really being excluded from national life. Uh, and the church also was able to really take back control of the parishes from these parishioners who were demanding control of church affairs. Uh, the church is reestablished in the 1880s, and they have control. And what happens after 15 years of this very much top-down authoritarian um, political system, excluding the majority from public life, is uh, this, this, this man walks out of the woods uh, of the Caribbean coast saying that he's the messenger from God. He's, he's sent from God to, to restore the church to its past glory, which I think he means 
popular control of the church, uh, he's seen as a political threat because he's starting to gather together thousands of people who follow him around um, uh, and claim to be, they're going to bring about a new, a, 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 a new world. I mean, it's a very much the, 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 the end of the 19th century was kind of a moment for millenarianism around the world. And so in Colombia, he, this is the millenarian moment. It's, it's really the, this popular uprising trying to restore um, uh, popular control of the church, trying to get rid of poverty. Um, these are people who not only are excluded, disenfranchised from the political system, but they're also suffering under um, this horrible economy. Uh, and so they're going to take control of the church. They're going to take control of land. Uh, and very quickly, the state sees this as a political threat. Uh, and they send in the military to get rid of uh, the movement. Uh, and they're able to get rid of the, the leader. They, they take control of him and then they execute him. Um, but his followers, by then they're about 10,000 or so, arm themselves and, and basically stage a rebellion against the government. They start assassinating local leaders. The, the army can't stop them. Uh, and so this is really the major test for the regen- regeneration, for this authoritarian system. Uh, and so uh, I and a few other p- scholars know about this, this guy, um, the, mes- the El Enviado de Dios, the, the, the one sent from God, the messenger of God. Uh, but not very many people know about him. He, he worked his way into, kind of into, into Caribbean folklore. There's, there's folklore studies from the 1940s, 1950s, where people have captured, you know, found stories, people talking about him. But he's really forgotten uh, but he's really a major, a major figure uh, at the time in 1898, 1899. Um, this really, this this major challenge to the state and to the church. Right. Um, but again, he's he's been suppressed as a as a historical figure. People have mostly forgotten about him. And except for the, are, are these popular narratives still ongoing? Do you know? I haven't seen. I haven't seen many published in recent years, really it's folklore studies from the forties and 1940s and fifties where people who, who knew him were still around. Right. Their children were, were telling stories. Um, but since that time, I think he's really slipped into obscurity. Um, but yeah, it's, I think, yeah, I think he's, I think he's, he's slipped away. And so I hope, I hope my work on him at least restores some sense that he was an important figure at the time. And again, he was, he was, he was captured and assassinated. Um, so he himself is kind of, there's very little known about him, but his right. movement was, was quite wide in, in, in the, his followers really did influence religious life for, for years afterwards. Interesting. So uh, finally, tell us about the War of a Thousand Days. So in 1899, the liberals had been excluded from public life for 15 years. Uh, after the re- regeneration was a conservative, mostly conservative movement. Um, our former liberals who had joined the conservatives. Uh, and so the liberals who had controlled national life politically from the 1850s to the 1880s were excluded. Uh, so liberal leaders got together and finally realized the only way we're going to get to get back to power is by staging a rebellion and, and fighting for power as they had in the 18, 1850s. Uh, so there's the, the political, the, the party, the liberal party gets together, stages a rebellion in 1899. It lasts for about three years. It's a very devastating conflict. It, at the time it was the most, 
it was the deadliest civil war in Latin American history up to that moment. Uh, which is saying a lot because yeah. Latin America has its history of civil wars <laughs> in the 19th century. It was, it, the estimates are 40,000 to a hundred thousand people died. Wow. Uh, in very little has been written about the Caribbean region in this conflict. And what I point out is that this, this partisan conflict between liberals and conservatives really erupted into these ongoing social struggles that the, the, this, this millenary movement was ongoing at the moment liberals began the, the war. Uh, and so on the coast, liberals fused with this popular religious struggle. Uh, and so it was very much a social conflict. Um, uh, but the liberals were, were so excluded from public life, they couldn't, they couldn't even enter the cities. In the cities, uh, there's martial law. Known liberals were arrested or put on house arrest. Uh, and so liberals were fighting in the countryside with this millenary movement, these, these, these revolutionary um, uh, Catholic uh, followers of this, this, um, this man who had been sent from God. Uh, but they were so excluded from life that um, the war reinforced the, the exclusions within citizenship. So in the, co- in, in, in the countryside, you had people of African descent fighting to regain some, some role in public life, some status, some, some rights. Uh, in the cities, you had these very small groups of uh, you know, elite men, um, you know, functionaries of this authoritarian, centralized government, uh, controlling the political system. Uh, and they were very, they were under very little threat. The, this war that went on for three years, liberals had very little um, chance of winning. Um, the economy collapsed during the war. Um, the, this, the, the, the kind of the standing armies kind of fell apart and became a guerrilla war. Um, but the war ended up just reinforcing the exclusions that had already been there. Um, so I, I actually, in my, in my, the chapter, chapter six on a very kind of down note, uh, the attempt to regain citizenship rights really fails. Um, there's really very little gain from the war. So after three years of devastating conflict, there's very little gained, um, for the massive excluded people. Um, uh, but what I try to do is I connect that to, um, a very brief, brief, vignette in my um, epilogue. Um, so the political system is basically just uh, a wash. The citizens are excluded. You know, one out, maybe one out of 10 men can vote. Wow. At most. Uh, there's very little say. The, the education system has not improved. Literacy has not improved. The Catholic Church has really suppressed parishioners having any involvement in, in, in the church affairs. Uh, and that really, though, leaves an opening for workers to organize. And on the coast, uh, they start to do so. The economy is so bad. There's such a crisis after this war um, that the workers of the Caribbean coast staged the, the, the country's first general strikes in 1910, then again in 1913. And then in 1918, there's a massive strike that shuts down the entire economy of the coast. And these general strikes are the first in Colombian history, and they're seen as the really galvanizing moment for a national labor movement. Um, and I, I, I think I don't really develop it in the book. I'm trying to develop it in a, an article. But the, I, I think that 
the political system is so shut down that it's really labor in, in the workplace that allows for any kind of attempt to regain recognition. Right. Uh, that, that, that working people are really forced to organize uh, in the workplace um, because politics is just, uh, there's nothing left for them. So in, in some senses, if, you, if you're looking at this story, uh, at the story that your whole book tells, if you're looking at it just from the sort of formal politics, the sphere of formal politics, this is yeah. a profoundly depressing story of sort of post-emancipation legacies. But if you're looking at it from vernacular politics or from even sort of labor and working rights, this is, um, if not a hopeful story, certainly one in which um, – uh, free people of color or or now uh, uh, Colombians of, of African descent, particularly right. in the Caribbean region, uh, really seem to be able uh, to maintain uh, something of a legacy of, of, of activism. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole the whole point of my book is to say you really can't understand Colombia unless you understand Afro-Colombians, people of African descent, and how they have really shaped the, the politics um, the labor movement, uh, the church, all of these, you know, institutions have been shaped by the, the activism, as you say, of, of people of African descent. Um, it was an unintended that, that, um, the civil war, the war of a thousand days would lead to this labor movement. On sure. the um, but what comes out of that is a net as a national labor movement that, uh, workers in other parts of Colombia are look to the coast as this kind of moment where, okay, now we can have this national moment. Now we can turn to socialist, syndicalist, trade union um, efforts and unify us across um, regional barriers. And it's really this, these, these um, people of color on the, on the Caribbean region uh, who are at the forefront of it. Um, and so, and again, I think, I think one of the ambivalent or ambiguous outcomes of that is that, that their role in the labor movement has been suppressed. Yeah. Um, but really, if you if we if we look back at the the history, it's it's these general strikes from 1910 onward on the coast, uh, the first in history that 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 lead to a national movement. Um, so again, that's another lost legacy I wanted to try to recover. In the yeah, book. and and quite an quite an important one. Um, so, Jason, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, so I just have one uh, final question for you. And again, thank you uh, for this. Uh, thank you for writing the book and thank you for uh, the great interview. Um, what are you working on now? Totally switching gears. <laughs> um, kind of. It doesn't feel like switching gears to me. So I, I'm writing um, uh, an international history of Jamaican music. Okay. Um, so I'm looking, starting in World War II, I'm looking at, at, at Jamaican men there's only men who are allowed to come to the U.S. And they worked in uh, agriculture, um, replacement workers as, as U.S. men were being drafted into the military during the war. Um, and from there, they pick up rhythm and blues, jazz. They get involved in um, you know, African-American leisure activities in the U.S., juke joints in, the, in Florida, jazz clubs and in, in blues clubs in Chicago. Uh, and they take the music back with them to Jamaica, and from there they start to cultivate their own rhythm and blues. That turns into ka, into ska, sorry, uh, into rock steady, and eventually into reggae. And at the same time that men are coming from Jamaica to to the U.S., Jamaican men and women are moving to to Britain. Yep. And 
Britain becomes a place where, um, due to the color bar and anti-immigrant and anti-racist sentiment in Britain, uh, West Indians are fairly excluded from national life, but they're still able to cultivate this, this, these, um, uh, these immigrant social worlds in, in London and other British cities. Uh, and they're also able to, uh, to earn wages that they couldn't earn in, in Jamaica. Uh, and they send remittances back to the island. And that becomes, uh, that really fuels uh, Jamaican music. The Jamaican recording industry is really fueled by um, the overseas Jamaican population. The diaspora really uh, is connecting to, is connected to what's happening in Jamaica. They're buying the recordings from Jamaica. And so the consumer patterns of Jamaicans in the U.S. and Britain is helping underwrite um, Jamaican music production back home. So I want to tell this story that's, that's both happening very much intensely in, in Kingston, but it's connected to London, it's connected to New York um, at the same time. Uh, and up until the early 1970s, it's really a, a kind of coherent transnational Jamaican community that's cultivating this music. And then, as we know, in the 1970s, reggae goes global, thanks to Bob Marley uh, and others. Um, but until the early 1970s, it's really about Jamaicans um, creating this, mu- this music and consuming this music transnationally. Um, and so that's the story I want to tell. I kind of want to – Kingston's very much this story, but it's also people moving in and out of Kingston, from right. Kingston to Britain to New York, Miami, Chicago, uh, and back again. Well, certainly we uh, certainly we look forward to uh, to that project uh, whenever whenever it emerges. Um, again, we want to uh, thank you so much. Uh, for, thank you so much, Christina. Thanks for uh, the interview. Uh, it was it was it was my pleasure. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. You've been listening to New Books in Caribbean Studies. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time. <laughs>